Good morning, beloved. And a special good morning to our dear, dear brother whom we love. Gary's here today with us. Let's give him some love. <laughs> to say we've missed you is an understatement. Okay. We had to do all the yard work ourselves this year without you. So. <laughs> You really hate yard work, don't you? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in humility and in hope. We come to you knowing we're dependent upon you for every breath we take, every thought we have, and every word we speak. We come to you with your names on our lips to praise you because you are high and holy. You are all-powerful and all-knowing. You are our counselor, our friend, our healer, our provider, and our fortress. So, Father, as we enter into this time of looking into your word, I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, back in... uh, January, uh, Steve, who is the, uh, among other millions of things he does for this church, he uh, runs the leader, the teaching team, and I'm, you all know me, right, there's the visitors here, but I'm Bill Smith, one of the, one of the teachers here, I'm the only Smith who didn't get struck down with the, uh, with the plague, I guess, or whatever they got, oh, you're good, yeah. oh, we got more, a lot of Smiths, Tuesday night at um, Men in Christ, we had uh, Will Smith there, and his son, Will Smith, and myself, Will Smith, and my son's name is Joshua William Smith. Four of the eight people were William Smith. That's how interesting this church is. We can't even come up with things. And so uh, Steve approached me, and he said, uh, you have any kind of series in mind you'd like to do? And I said, no, thanks for asking. And I think it's part of his way of, could you take some turns preaching? Because <laughs> it's a lot of work to do this. It's, it's, and I'm always amazed for 30 minutes of, of talking or preaching. It's hours and hours of preparation. That's sort of the downside. The upside is the person up here is learning so much more than we can actually share. So you all should take a turn doing this, okay? <laughs> you learn a lot in the process, so... But I kept thinking about that, and I think the Lord said that through him to me, and over time, started things started bubbling up, and maybe I do. And so that's why we're here today to, to do a series on what we're going to call living the, the balanced Christian life, or being calm and confident and, and compassionate. And so as I uh, looked at that, uh, I, I began to see some things in Scripture I hadn't seen before. Years ago, I had done a study that lasted a year, and it started out with the notion that there's these polarities in Scripture, so you have good and evil, and dark and light. And I started that, and I thought, well, I'm surely I won't get to 52 weeks, because it was every week. No problem getting to 52 weeks with all these polarities. Then I thought, well, that's all there is in Scripture. And then the Lord started to show me there's also a bunch of trinities in Scripture as well. And so that's where I want to start at. So why should you come back the next three Sundays? 
And why should you even stay here? And so here's some questions I'd like to suggest to you that maybe you want to listen in. Are you satisfied with where you are spiritually now? Are you where you saw yourself 10 or 15 years ago? Or do you feel like there might be something more to all of this? Is there part of you that seems to want to be somehow more active or involved, but you're not sure how to do that? Are you getting tired of sounding like a broken wheel making the same mistakes over and over and asking for forgiveness? Do you sense you have come to know God any better, or have things pretty much remained the same? Are you still struggling with trying to get a grasp of how this Christian life is supposed to work? Now, if you're answering no to all those questions, you're now dismissed, and I'll see you in a month. (laughs) But if you're answering uh, something else, then there might be something here for you. So the goal is to be living in this calm, yet confident, yet compassionate life. And so to start, I'd like to start, I'd like to begin at the beginning and to talk about the, the, the trinity of all trinities, which is the Holy Trinity. And this has been a doctrine that's been around for quite some time. There are some other um, religions or theologies that don't buy this because you'll find nowhere in Scripture will you find the words Holy Trinity. In fact, I don't even know if the word Trinity is the Holy is in the Bible. I know that, but the word (laughs) Trinity is not. So this is one of these constructs or theologies that we begin to piece together by looking at different parts of Scripture, not just one place, but a lot of places. And what's interesting is that we can go all the way back to the beginning, the very first three verses of the Bible, and see evidence for the Trinity. Uh, Years ago, when I first uh, encountered to have to defend this, um, had you ever get some of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses come? This is one of the things that they'll argue against. And they'll use the idea that you can't have a Holy Trinity. God is just one God. Because one plus one plus one does not equal one. I, I missed that in math in first grade, I guess. I said, what's interesting, since you use math, then we'll use math. And one times one times one equals one. One divided by one divided by one equals one. One minus one minus one equals negative one. The absolute value of which, which is a math construct, is one. So the four functions of math, three of them come up with one. <laughs> well, who says you? I say, you decided math, not me. <laughs> then we looked up the word person in the Webster's Dictionary. Look up the word person in the Webster's Dictionary, and it will refer to as in the three persons of God and the Holy Trinity in Webster's Dictionary. So we're going to start here to, to set this up. So we read in, in Genesis, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty, or void, it sometimes says. Darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. So in the beginning, God, God created. So the Bible starts with an assumption of God. There's no proving of God. I'm going to get into apologetics here, right? So it's this assumption is made, and there's a premise. We've been talking about premises and, and faulty premises. Well, in Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And here we are in the beginning, in the first verse. Jesus was there. He also talks about, um, in the second verse, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in John 15, 
Jesus talks about this spirit, and now the spirit's called the advocate. He's called the advocate, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. And then we see in the third verse, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in another place, Jesus says in John 8, when he spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He also says, or said about him, the word became flesh and, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, whom came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the, what's interesting about the third verse of Genesis 1 is when God says, let there be light, those are what are called words of God. And the word of God becomes flesh. And then we see this creation story, and God says, let us make mankind in our image. So there's at least two people, if not three. In our image and likeness, as in this creation story, we see this creating mankind in God's image and likeness. And then there's the fall that occurs. And then in Genesis 5, the story is recounted or recapitulated. And now it says, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Now, this is a subtlety, and I don't want to make too much of a point of this, but I find it interesting that in Genesis 1, it says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And after the fall, the story says, God made them in the likeness of God. The image is no longer there. I don't know what to make of that. I just find that interesting because of something that happens in 2 Corinthians. For those who come to know the Lord, it says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image, being restored with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I love this, the little kitty cat looking in the mirror. <laughs> it's who we really are. Sometimes I think we feel more like the little kitty cat, right? A little scared. So, so if we are in Christ, being transformed or restored into his image and likeness, and if God is really a holy trinity consisting of three persons yet one, then perhaps there is something about us that is also a trinity, and yet we are still one person. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that I have been into, been into a polemics or dialogue or, I wouldn't say arguments, but discussion, because I've met other Christians who, who say, no, there's nothing about us that's like God, and we are not a trinity, we're just one person. I've heard other people argue for four parts, so I'm just putting something for you for for practical purposes of how we might apply God's word into our life. So if, if that's the case, and we see this in a couple places, like in 1 Thessalonians, we see, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is one kind of graphic representation where we have this body that the world has access to, the world, the flesh, Satan, communicates to the body, through the body, through the brain, to the soul. And then when we're born into God, the spiritual realm is informing our new spirit. And both of those are, are going after the soul, trying to have an influence. So there's some evidence of a trinity. So in life, there are always three variables, the situation, self, and others. I use this model from my coaching model. When people are struggling, they're always struggling with somebody else at work or somebody else in the family. And I'll say in life there's always three variables, situation, self, and others. Two of those you can change. 
and neither one of those is the other person. So you might need to change. <laughs> they don't like to hear that. You know. One person, I finally just say, well, okay, well, we'll bring your mother in here, and if I fix her, well, you get all better. No, okay, well, let's stop blaming mom. <laughs> what can you do about that? So the idea here of this series is then to, to live a centered life would mean keeping a, a balanced focus on all three of those. And so what I would want to encourage, encourage you to be doing throughout uh, today and the next three Sundays would be to think about yourself in terms of where you're at, in terms of focus or orientation to any of these three. So we'll just start out with this idea of situational or external circumstances that are going on around us. And I go to Philippians 4, and he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so what we're going to take a look at here with regard to the situation is how oriented are we to it, or maybe we're not oriented to that situation. And so I want to go into another interesting situation that uh, the disciples found themselves in. And as they were sailing, he fell asleep. Now, that's not the best clip. I think the producer of that movie couldn't afford a bigger boat because it seemed like a kind of a <laughs> tiny boat to me. And I think it was in the, the stern there, but, uh, you know, it's just kind of interesting and fun to look at some of these movie clips that kind of go bo- back to Mark 4. And in just this passage, it could probably be a series in itself. So much is going on here. But I want to highlight some things about this. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
So I think it's interesting about this situation that they're in. And what they do is wake up God and ask God, don't you care? You ever have that thought sometimes when you're in certain situations, you wonder if God cares. And Jesus responds, not with, yes, I care, but why are you so afraid? So it's okay and it's right to be concerned, to care about, or to attend to the situation. Lack of concern about the situation is called apathy. Over-concern for the situation results in fear and worry, among other things. So, the disciples accused Jesus of apathy. And Jesus accuses the disciples of fear and worry. I, I kind of imagine in my mind that afterwards there might have been a conversation, something like this, once they were safe back to shore. And one of the disciples says, so weren't you worried the boat might sink? Weren't you anxious the situation would overwhelm us? Weren't you upset the waves could ruin us? And Jesus would have said, no. And the disciple would say, why not? And Jesus might have said, that would never happen. So during the storm, and everything's raging around him, what's he doing? He's sleeping. In fact, you know, it would have been like, guys, I was just having this nice sleep, and the waves were rocking me gently, you know. But wouldn't they crash? No, the waves would never crash over me. They know who I am. In fact, a couple chapters later, you're going to see me walk on top of them during a storm, by the way. So, in fact, had they swamped the boat, I would have been sleeping on top of the water. They know who I am. My frustration is, you don't know who I am. When you're with me, when you're with me, you're completely safe. Why are you worrying? Where's your faith at? Then another situation on a boat occurs in Acts 27. And just a little bit of context here. uh, Paul is going to be going uh, to stand trial before Caesar, and they're going to uh, have to take him by boat. And um, he's warned not to go because of the storms and so on, but they decide to go anyway against Paul's advice. Of course, I'm sure they're probably thinking, you just want to go stand trial, right? Or you probably have some clients like that who don't want to go to court, right? They would like to... So... Uh, they end up getting in a big storm, a hurricane-type storm. And uh, then Paul says, I told you so. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously, graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. It's an interesting phrase there. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, and if you were here last week, we found out that nevertheless is the most important word in Scripture. I don't know if that hit you when Rick Sardella talked about that, but I'm still chewing on that. I think that's awesome. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So he encourages them. Another part in the scripture talks about how they began to put ropes over the front of the boat so they'd let them float back and literally were tying the boat together with the ropes they had. That's how violent the storm was. In fact, the storm went on for two weeks. 
And at and that point, in an attempt to escape from the ship, that some of the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul saw this, and he said to the centurion over the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. I think that's really interesting. So, so the classic thing is the first time God uh, brings the storm to peace, and the second time in this situation, God gives them peace and keeps the storm going. I think something else that's interesting here, and, and that is, if you start to attempt to vary the situation because you're becoming impatient with God, you make your own lifeboat, start to figure things out on your own, it might not be such a good idea. He's saying, the very thing that I have you on this ship is a situation I want you in, I have you in now, and I'm going to protect you on this ship. Even as the situation falls apart, you won't. So let's reflect on that for a second for yourself. Take a moment to be thinking, and we're going to go into this in more detail in one of the next Sundays. To what extent are we still somewhat dependent on the situation being good for us? being what we need to have some sense of, of peace around things. When things start to go wrong, what happens for us in terms of, of anxiety or worry? Or the other, which is more of my issue, is things going on around me and not really caring about them. It's somebody else's problem. Hopefully somebody else takes care of that. Where are you at in that issue of how you're oriented to your situation? And now let's talk about how we are focusing on ourselves. This may sound odd, but give me a second here. So the scripture tells us in Romans, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, not to think more highly of oneself. But then we can go to Judges, and in Judges tells us that the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to the to Joash the Abizarite, I think that's how you pronounce it, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now this wine press, I have it pictured up here. This, this is a wine press, and the press is down there in the hole. So I, I think there's somebody here who could probably explain what's the significance of Gideon Threshing wheat in the wine press. I'm going to do a little Steve Coleman to get audience participation here. Is there any significance to that? Yes, Don. Okay, so he's doing it the hard way. He's doing it the hard way. Yeah. Normally you're out in the open, right? Threshing the wheat, throwing up in the air. Wind comes and blows away the chaff and the kernels fall to the ground. He's in a wine press because of his fear. He's fearful. So, you know, he's kind of a scaredy cat. He's afraid of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord refers to him as a mighty warrior. Who's the guy down there in the hole scared to death? of that's, that's our mighty warrior right down there. Yeah. <laughs> really. <laughs> Operating out of fear <clears throat> makes the job harder and longer, Right? So to be focused on or oriented to self, I am not talking about being selfish. Self-aware does not mean selfish. So to be focused or oriented on self can mean to not think too highly 
or too lowly, as Gideon was doing, thinking too lowly of himself. It can also mean investing time and energy and growing in our spiritual strength. It can also mean being sanctified, which is the process that we participate in by allowing God to bring these parts of our lives into our awareness, to strip away that which causes the repetitive sin. It can mean spending time in God's word. It can mean growing in the exercise of your spiritual gifts, which means first acknowledging that you have some, which you do, and then beginning to actually use them. Because if you don't use them, they say use it or lose it, whereas if you practice at it, practice makes progress. Being transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Steve was sharing with us a few weeks ago. And understanding your new identity in Christ and focusing on that's who I really am. Even though it doesn't feel like that. Claiming that I am crucified with Christ. I'm no longer alive. That's really who I am. That's the lion in the mirror. That's the mighty warrior. To what extent have you been participating in growing in yourself and in the Lord? And where in your life can that be a bigger part of your life of who you are and who you're becoming? And then the third part is then being oriented to others. So if this is who I am, who are those people? Right? Who are they? And so there's lots of scriptures that talk about this. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A new command I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have with others. (laughs) For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we have scriptures, and there's more, but we have this idea here in scripture that we should be aware of and concerned about our external situation. We should also be aware of who we are and who we're becoming. We also should be aware that others, we have this opportunity to love on people. And this is something that the Lord has been working in in my life over the past several years, this whole thought of start to love on people, just love on people. Don't wait for the chance. Just love on people, Bill. Just knock all this other stuff off. You're trying to be prepared for this or that. Start to love on people. So, The idea would be, if we are out of balance, and if we place too much emphasis or hope on our situation for our sense of peace, what might happen as a result of that? What kind of things might we see going on in our life? Well, we might really never be happy because the situation will never line up with what we want it to be by design. Or we might become overly exuberant about things, and only when things are going well. Or we might be often asking, why me? Or condemning others as opposed to loving them. Or lots of worrying about stuff. And we're going to go into this in more detail. This is sort of a movie trailer here. Or what if we're out of balance and we are placing too much emphasis or hope on gaining self-understanding? This would really be more my slide of focusing on that to the exclusion of the other two. And then you can become so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good. And that's not a good thing. Or we can be out of balance by ministering. Now, this might seem odd, but it is possible that if this is all you're doing and you're always giving, giving to everybody else, 
um, you might become codependent on them, needing them so that you can have some sense of peace. Or you might become bitter. Because what have you learned about when you love other people? What comes back to you? Sometimes it, nothing comes back to you, right? And then you start to resent them. Or if you're not really paying attention to the situation or growing, I can't take that right now, I'm busy. <laughs> um, if we're not, haven't grown and we have to offer. Oh, yeah, happy Father's Day, guys, by the way. <laughs> Oh, I had a little thing I was going to say about that, too. Let me, let me just say that real, real quick, to, just to continue to an, encourage you uh, from, from my area of discipline and, and, and social psychological research. Uh, they find that just the, having a dad in the home is better, even if he's not such a great dad. Just being there sometimes is, is all you need to do is just to be there. If you actually start to participate, wow, it really gets good, you know? (laughs) Stay there, hang in there. So anyway, back here. Providing ineffective or inappropriate help because I'm not focused on the other two or becoming resentful of others because they're not appreciating all I'm doing or just becoming drained. uh, One of those guys I, I studied with years ago talked about special ministry he started to set up for missionaries who were out there giving, giving, giving. Nothing was coming back and had come back to the States and to, to build them back up because they just became, not all, but some because worn out because nothing's coming back to them and begin to teach them that you have to do stuff for yourself as well. Or you can have a healthy balance on two of these variables but not the third one. You know, a good understanding of the situation of yourself but, um, well, as far as everybody else, uh, those poor people have it tough. <laughs> poor saps. They probably deserve it though. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> I never said this. <laughs> Maybe have thought it, right? <laughs> or focus on the situation and others, uh, but I'm not sure who I am anymore. And uh, God be, seems distant to me. Or uh, being, you know, growing and, and focusing on others, but somebody should do something about that. It's not my role. I'm just growing in the Lord and loving other people, but clueless about the situation. This is something that, um, among other things, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was known for, was, was noticing what's really going on in the situation, right? And began to talk about it, and everybody sort of, oh, you know, you're over-worrying, and turns out he was right on the mark with what the Lord was showing and what's happening in the country with the, with the Nazi movement. So the suggestion, then, is that we would work on striving towards getting those in balance in our life so that we can live a calm, confident, compassionate life. So how do I do that? How do I achieve that? Well, it would start with awareness and acceptance of, of where you are. And it's not that you're there all the time. I mean, I love on people every once in a while. <laughs> I look at the situation once in a while, but it's not in a balanced way in my life. I tend to focus more on, on who I am. Ask others, you know, for feedback. That's what fellowship is good for and, and our, all the groups that we have. Ask God to show you where he's working on you. And look to your strengths that he's already given you to serve your weaknesses. And by that I mean, if this is your situation, then use your natural awareness and concern for the situation coupled with your identity in Christ to serve and increase your sense of compassion for others. To build upon what you already do well or have fairly figured out. Or use your natural compassion for others combined with your ability to assess the situation 
to help you realize your need for and utter dependency on Jesus to be able to love others. Or the third possibility would be allow your compassion for others, coupled with your sense of humor in Christ, to become motivated to be more aware and tuned into what's going on around us. So, how do I know I'm living a balanced, Christ-centered life? Well, one of the, one of the uh, barometric indicators, we might say, would be the more balanced we tend to become, the more we seem to want to be taking action. We want to get involved. It's just a natural thing. Now, this is a little dangerous area for me because I don't want to flip this into you need to do good works in order to be saved. It's the opposite. The more you understand where you are, who you are, and who they are, the more you'll naturally want to take action in other people's lives. And this isn't my suggestion. This is actually commanded in Scripture. We read in 1 John 3, let us love with words Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Then this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. We also read in James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but to do what it says. Beth recently read a book called Love Does, and she's bought about... 4,000 copies, and is giving it to everybody. If you don't have your copy yet, just tell her, and she will buy you a copy. <laughs> it's a good book, and, um, and, you know, the theme of the book, Love Does, and he said one of the things he talks about in the book, uh, sort of a, um, uh, what do you call it, you're, you're, you're giving away something, I forget what they call that, something alert, spoiler alert, is... Um, he says, in our group, in our men's group, we stopped having Bible studies and started having Bible doings. <laughs> Start to actually act out the word. So, we're talking about having this in balance. So, the next three Sundays, we're going to break these into more detail. And so, we're going to look at those as having a, a scale. Where, if you're, as I already said, if you're too calm, you don't care about anything. But if you're not calm enough, you start to have worry and fear, among other things that we'll talk about. If you lack confidence, you have timidity. If you're overly confident, then you're arrogant. And we'll talk about that. If you lack compassion, you become indifferent towards the needs of others. And if you're overly compassionate, you become codependent on them for your sense of of who you are. So we're talking about living a balanced, confident life compassionate life. And so as I shared a few Sundays ago, this realization that I had that God is holy, God is love, and the third one I learned was God is power. And so that seems to track to this, God is holy, God is power, God is love. That's who he is. And what we have, because we're in him, is we have a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So what we're really talking about is faith, hope, and love. And then we're going to see how each of those tracks to that part of Scripture. So, this morning we were in Genesis in the Bible study. And there's this passage in Genesis that I just kind of find neat to think about as God walks through the garden in the cool of the day, coming to be with mankind, and they've fallen. And he asks of man, where are you? And I think he's still asking that question. Where are you? And where do you want to be with me? 
And here's one approach that might help you. It, it might not help you. It's helping me. <laughs> and, and sometimes things that help me sometimes help other people <laughs> to be thinking about how I can be a bit more disciplined with regard to my own personal development, but also become more disciplined in noticing where there's needs in the community or somebody needs to be loved on or becoming more tuned into what's going on around me and being concerned about it, but not worrying about it. (laughs) When little things go wrong, not to start to lock up and panic and think everything's going to fall apart because there's one little thing that didn't go the way I was expecting it to go. So that's my encouragement to us as we move forward. So I'm going to close with a prayer. And I've, I've labeled this prayer the Balanced Christian Life. And I've also put copies of this out there if you would like to, to have this prayer. And so I'll also use this as a benediction. So if you would be so kind as to stand as we bring our time together to an end. And let us pray. Father, I'm, I'm not really sure where I am exactly in relationship to this calm, confident, compassionate life that you might desire for me. And I never really thought about it before like this. However, I do know where I want to be. I choose to continue to grow to a place where I am truly concerned about what is going on around me, but not so concerned that I need my external circumstances to provide my inner peace. And there are some things I have grown cold towards and stopped caring about. Help me to see with your eyes. I also pray for my own continued growth and understanding who I am in you. Teach me about yourself so that I may come to know you better and who I am in you because of that. Make me stand with confidence in you and temper my ego to keep me from pride. Where I am timid, remind me of the power you have placed in me. And finally, the deepest part of me truly wants to love others. I am open to learning and growing and loving others without feeling bitter or needing them to love me back. Teach me this love you have that places no demands on others, that has no conditions for them to be loved, that needs nothing in return, Bring me to a place where I can even love my enemies like you do. Show me how this loving others in and of itself makes me full and complete. I trust you, Lord, in faith for all of this. Our hope is in you making us confident. Our hearts are opening and becoming vulnerable so that we may love them as you love them. I see this now in my mind coming to life in me as you once shook the world, so shake me now so the gospel would ring out through my life. Touch my heart in the hardened places to make it soft towards others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. And everybody said, Amen.